Our Father, at the heart of this passage, we see people doubting your character, doubting your words, doubting your goodness. And so we pray as we look at these verses and and think more generally about the topic, we pray that you would give us soft hearts to hear your voice. Pray that you might be at work among us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In many places in life, that there's a kind of interesting new tolerance in the air. In years gone by, tolerance was discussed, but as something compared to a broadly agreed value system or, or a truth or a benchmark of behaviour. And so when someone's actions or, or words were in conflict with this truth, this, this way of behaving, then there was a level of tolerance, but then discussions were had, well, how far can you go from this, from this truth? How far can you go before sanctions are faced? When do we draw the line? How far is too far? That was tolerance. Here is a benchmark for behaviour. Now, how far from it are you? Think of family rules in a house. Children aren't allowed to hit one another. If they do, they will face sanctions. It will be naughty step or removal of privileges or they're grounded or straight to bed, whatever the system in your house But things are different now as we consider tolerance because because one of the legacies of postmodernism has been that in large part our culture still sees right and wrong as a social construct. Not as something timeless or absolute, but for a particular place, something relative. It's okay for you and your situation, but don't try and impose that on me and my situation. Which means there's, there's a shift in how we define tolerance, at least in, in everyday use. Because tolerance, but it's tolerance where there's often little consensus. There's no real agreement on what is right and wrong, or good and evil, or holiness and sin. I say that, and then something like Paris happens, and you see that there are still lines drawn. Tolerance ends up being personally about, well, don't you tell me how to live or think. Don't you judge me or disagree with my lifestyle choices. Don't you make me feel uncomfortable? But then all those questions, what are we being tolerant of? To what extreme? Where are the sanctions? Should there be sanctions? Uh, Have the lines all gone or are they in the process of going? And often this tolerance seems to trump everything. Tolerance becomes the supreme good, the supreme God. Discussion is shut down because someone fundamentally disagrees with you and they say you are intolerant. Therefore, I don't listen. Back in the house, what's happened is the kids have started to question the rules. How how dare you judge me? How dare you give me sanctions? I'm just expressing myself as I punch my sibling. (laughs) What right have you got to question my behaviour? Which means, in many ways, our increasingly post-Christian culture is a confusing and complicated place to be. Foundations are being eroded. It's a culture increasingly that's unwilling or unable to identify evil or sin. 
And yet I say it, it's confused because last week happened. There's an outcry as someone goes and shoots journalists, cartoonists. We see tolerance in practice has limits. There's confusion because it's just 15 years from the bloodiest century in human history. I quote here from one commentator. There was not just one holocaust. Add to that the Nazi slaughter of Jews, the Stalin starvation of 20 million Ukrainians, the Maoist slaughter of perhaps 50 million Chinese, the massacre of between perhaps a quarter and a third of the population of Cambodia, tribal slaughter of Hutus and Tutsis and various ethnic cleansings. He continues, how shall we calculate the damage material and psychological of terrorism in all its forms, of unrestrained consumerism, of all the damage done by drug abuse of many kinds, the digital revolution that ushers in spectacular improvements in research and data handling and communication, but also brings instant access to porn, with untold damage done to man-woman relationships and in general, and to marriages in particular. And they go on and on and on. You see, it's a confusing place as the world tries to work out what is right and wrong and what does tolerance look like. But I take it, despite this atmosphere of new tolerance, despite personal sin almost being mocked and laughed at, as believers, we do away with sin at our peril because sin is utterly foundational to the plot line of the Bible. Someone said that the theme that holds the Bible together is sin and how God, rich in mercy, deals with sin and sinners for his own glory and for our good. They continue, if we don't comprehend the massive role that sin plays in the Bible, we shall misread the Bible. Which is a big claim. And you see, if the world is confused about sin, simultaneously it's surrounded by it and immersed in it, and it hates it, but then not necessarily willing to name it, the danger is those cultural patterns seep into the church and affect people like us. I think it's likely it already has. Another writer says, Our awareness of sin used to be like our shadow. Christians hated it, feared it, fled from it and grieved over it. But the shadow's dimmed. Now it's something fun and to be grinned at. Something to do with food or indulgence. Just having a laugh. And yet at Christmas... Christmas, it should be no surprise to us that Jesus comes with that name because he has come to save his people from their sins. Because that is the heart of the plotline of the Bible. That is what it's all about. So the plan for this little series, these next six weeks or so, is in a sense to do two things that help us to do one thing. Okay, so the two things... Firstly, is just to put sin back into our vocabulary and to be honest about it and aware of it, to engage with it, to remember it, to call a spade a spade. Not, as with our culture, to allow it to slide away and be sidelined. But also, particularly, and as the kids were thinking about, secondly, it's to, to help us see the breadth of the language used in the Bible as it talks about sin, as it defines sin. 
There isn't just one way, one system, one model that the Bible uses, but there's all kinds of different. So we've, I've picked five. There are loads more. And we're going to think about idolatry, adultery, shame, uncleanliness, and law-breaking. They're the five we've chosen. So remember, we're trying to put sin back into our vocabulary and we're trying to see the breadth of sin. But then, why to do one thing? Again, the kids saw it already. It's so that we get the cross again. So that we see how precious the cross is. So that we see how extraordinary God's love is for us. And how the cross deals with all kinds of models of sin. I remember vividly, when we were in Birmingham, there was a student in our church who for the first time understood the cross. She had been brought up in a Christian house. She had been to many, many, many church services. She had heard many sermons. She had sung of the cross. She knew it was good news. But it was only really when she grasped the reality of sin did she see how important the cross was. When she grasped the bad, then she got the good for the first time. She had never really been taught about sin. And so each week we're going to do a very similar thing. We'll look at a particular passage and we will work our way through it. And then we shall see how the cross is the answer. So I want us to see the weight and the reality of our sin. I want us all to feel uncomfortable. So that we then are so thankful for the cross. We see how much God loves us. This could all be very theoretical. This could just be a doctrine to understand. Ah, I understand hamartiology now. But it's not just out there somewhere, is it? It's in here. And it's daily. And it's me and it's you. And it's every relationship that we're in. It's every aspect of our week. It's every situation in which the Lord puts us. We want to grasp the reality of our sin afresh so that we understand the cross again. We're going to begin, though, at the beginning. And as was read for us, Genesis chapter 3. We're just really going to look at the first few verses there as we examine them and we'll see something of the timeless realities of sin. The way in which it works. We'll see the extraordinary depth in those first few verses. So first point. Sin begins with doubting the truth of God's word. Have a look down and just see the way that the serpent seeks to bring seeds of doubt into the mind of Eve. He wants her to question what God has said and why God has said it. He's painting God as a killjoy. It's very sneaky the way he does it. Right through chapter 3, the covenant name of God, L-O-R-D, capitals, is used. Yahweh, that is, God is relational, personal. God loves his people. Except for these verses here. Do you notice that? If, if you like, he's just hinting, well, maybe God is not personal. Maybe God is not relational. 
Maybe just looking to highlight the distance. Can you really know this God? Doesn't he feel a long way off? Can you really know him? And you can see where he's trying to get to in in verse 5. He wants to bring into doubt God's character, his goodness. It's, It's a profoundly relational tactic that he begins with. Question one, he, he twists God's words, leading her to focus on the one tree that they can't touch. She then adds to it, seemingly, potentially, a, a way to keep clear of temptation. And he says to Eve, and he says to us, are you sure God wants the best for you? Are you sure God wants the best for you? No, he, he wants to protect himself. He wants his little role to be secure. He knows that if you eat from that tree, then you'll be like him. God is all about putting you in your place. God is all about keeping you quiet, says Satan. And he says to us, he feels very far off, doesn't he? Doesn't God feel a long way away, aloof? Does he even seem real? Are you sure he wants the best for you? How could he know the daily pressures you face? How can God really sympathise from up there? Just just watch it. Just read it. Just say it. Just think it. Just do it. Ignore what God says. He's just a killjoy. He just seeks to flatten life. Make everything grey. Just to make it all boring. Doubt. The serpent casts doubt into her mind. And into our minds. As well as doubt, there's denial. He, he flatly says, it's in your face, you will not die. Let's consider the evidence. Chapters 1 and 2, however you take the literature of those chapters, God's word has been utterly powerful and perfect. Everything that he has said would happen has happened. He's made a world, he's made all that's in it, out of nothing, and it's ordered and it's good. And she's being manipulated by a snake. The creation order has flipped over. Rather than God, by his word, governing people who govern creation, everything is turned on its head. Creation is ruling people and getting them to doubt the God that made them. His character, his truth, denying his power. You will not die. Don't you hear those same words? I don't know what they are for you. Yeah, we know that God says this. But that won't really happen. He doesn't really mean it, does he? It'll all be fine. He he won't mind that much. Have a moan. Just spend your money on it. It's fine. It's just a little lie. It doesn't matter that much. You'll never see them again anyway. Have a gossip. Just ignore him and do what you want because you deserve it. Indulge yourself. There won't be any real consequences. It doesn't really matter. You will not surely die. Their sin begins with doubting and then denying the word of God. And it blossoms and it flourishes until we see the second reality... Sin is faithlessness and rebellion against God. Have a look back at chapter 2 and verse 8. 
Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jump ahead to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. See, the picture that's painted is that God has not made a boring world. It is not grey. He's not just making do. It is plentiful and generous and good and beautiful and joyful. He's not a tyrannical, oppressive, cruel leader. He is kind and generous. He, He doesn't want to just squeeze the fun out of life. He's good. And there's just one tree that they can't eat from. There's just one line drawn for their own good. One line that shows they are willing to listen and submit to God. The one thing that shows they trust him. God had provided for them perfectly. He had given them all they need. And as they take and eat from the one tree, it shows they're faithless. It shows they are not going to trust what God has given them, but take more than was due to them. They want more than they can have. They're not satisfied with God, with his provision, with his pattern. It shows their faithlessness. God says to us, here's the way it works. Do do things like this. Live life like this. Trust me, you can rely on me. This is how it works. And we don't. And we're anxious. And we try and do things our way or by our time or in our methods. And we, we manipulate situations and people and circumstances because, because we don't trust God. We don't trust his ways of doing things. We, we lack faith in his good plans for us, in his provision for us. Are there things in your week that spring from this lack of faith? That emotions that you encounter that come because of faithlessness, that come from not trusting him, not trusting his methods. And of course, faithlessness flourishes into rebellion. Rebellion as they say, as they do what God said they should not do. And it all starts very small. Just a little trivial inquiry. One one piece of forbidden fruit, can it really matter that much? The world's not going to fall apart because of that. I'll make that judgment for myself. From the small sin comes the big fall. Again, I take it often for us it is just something little which has massive implications. Something that seems innocuous, but it grows and it engulfs and it rules us. The little thing that turned out not to be so little. To have knock-on consequences. It just seems trivial, but, but it is rebellion. All rebellion is rebellion. 
the reality is, is in a room of this size, as I look around and I look into my own heart, we're very different people. There'll be very different rebellions going on through the week. But I have no doubt that it will affect everyone. And so I want to say to you, as I say to myself, it is not trivial. It is rebellion. It's a rebellion against your creator God who loves you, who made you, who knows you. But it is rebellion. So why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches the disciples, lead us, or teaches them to pray, lead us not into temptation. Why is that? Because he knows that when we get there, we're just like Adam and Eve. So it begins doubting the truth of God's word. It develops into faithlessness and rebellion. Finally, it's one thing to be like God. So you see that there in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That's the hook that finally gets her. Of, of course, wanting to be like God in and of itself is not actually wrong. We, male and female, top of, chap- top of page 4 in your Bibles, Genesis 1.27, we are already made in his image. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So in a sense, we're already like God. And as Christians, post-fall, we are being conformed into the image of Christ. Romans 8.29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The thing is, though, we want to define in what way we are like God. And gallons of ink have been spilt trying to decide exactly what's going on here. I take it it's pretty clear from the, the context and the situation what is not happening, what this fruit is not. It does not lead them to omniscience. They're not all knowing now because they don't know everything. It's not moral discernment, some people say. If it was, if they didn't have that before the fall, then how could they be told by God what is right or wrong? For instance, not eating this fruit. It's not sexual knowledge. Sex is not the forbidden fruit. God made sex for marriage, which they, man and wife, enjoyed before the fall. I think we understand what's going on when we see the outcome of eating the fruit in the context. Verse 5, God knows good and evil. So the temptation is to have something that rightly belongs to God. The ability to decide what is right and wrong. The ability to be the moral arbiter. But God calls the shots. God says what is right and wrong. That is his department. And so for the woman, as she takes the fruit... What is happening is that she decides that she knows best and that God doesn't know best. He says, I want to take God's position and I want to live my life my way and I want to decide what is right and wrong. And so do you see, sin dethrones, overthrows God, or at least it seeks to. It seeks to usurp his authority. It seeks to put us in his place. It's interesting, it's pride. We, we saw it in 2 Timothy. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, it's the elevation of self again. In the last days, people will be lovers of self. And the last days, in a sense, are nothing new. We want to be little gods. We want to be at the centre. We want to make the call. We want it all to be about us. And we always have done. One person says, as one, every sin is an act of cosmic treason, treason, a futile attempt to dethrone God. So again, I want to say to you, as I say to myself, as we sin this week, whatever your battle, whether it's thought, word, deed, wherever that is for you, as you cross that line and as you rebel, know that in a sense you're wanting to take God's role. You think that you know best. You you think that his rules don't matter. You want to be on the throne. So there's just a glimpse of Genesis chapter 3. You bury down and you see the reality of sin still at work today, even now in us. You see these patterns you see timeless realities of sin. Adam and Eve failed their test and the whole human race has been failing ever since. And it's from there that the world breaks. Relationships are ruined. Relationships with God, relationships with the world, relationships with one another, everything breaks. And dealing with the brokenness and the pain and the suffering is what takes up the rest of the Bible. Which brings us to our last point. And it's a good point. Jesus deals with our sin. The thing is, the God of the Bible is morally just, perfectly holy, pure, perfectly good. And yet he completely loves us. He he made this world, he, he loves this world in a costly way. Now where do we see that? Well, in your mind, cut from the Garden of Eden at the start to the Garden of Gethsemane at the end. And in a sense, these two gardens show the two choices. They show two representatives, two Adams. Cut from Adam and Eve in Eden as they doubt God's word, as they are faithless and rebellious, as they want to be like God, and then cut to Jesus in Gethsemane, who trusts God's word and will perfectly, who trusts and obeys his Father. And rather than wanting to be like God, even though he had every right to, He doesn't use his status for himself. He he lowers himself. Philippians 2, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He had every right to use his status but he didn't and he wouldn't. Because of his extraordinary love for us, he dies. For people like me and for people like you, people who, who daily doubt the truth of God's word and who doubt his character, who daily are faithless and rebellious, who daily wants his position, want to be like God. For people like us who daily sin, 
The differences between the two accounts of the two gardens are striking. In Eden, all was delightful. In Gethsemane, all was terrible. In Eden, Adam spoke with Satan. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought the face of his father. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Saviour suffered. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, the Redeemer conquered. The conflict in Eden took place by day. The conflict in Gethsemane was waged at night. In the one, Adam fell before Satan. In the other, the soldiers fell before Christ. In Eden, the race was lost. In Gethsemane, Christ regained what was rightfully his. Do you see, the sin of the first Adam in Genesis 3, acting in the place of his people who walks out on the God of life, brings suffering and pain and death. But that is beautifully undone and overturned and removed by the wonderful obedience of the second Adam. As he acts in the place of his people, he, he loves us. He brings us life instead of death. And you see, in Eden, because the first Adam failed, then you failed. But in Gethsemane, because the second Adam trusted and was obedient. While in Christ, so did you. And what a foundation for life that is. What a foundation for this week. Remember, you are in Christ. You don't need to earn or to impress or to strive to please God because he's as pleased with you in Christ as he can ever be. And so with his help this week, live as one who is in Christ. Turn from sin. Live for him. Let's pray. Father, as the light of your word shines upon us and into us, We recognise the desire to hide from it. We see the parallels with Adam and Eve and with us. We see the way in which we doubt your words, doubt your character and your goodness. We see our faithlessness and our rebellion and we see the way in which we, we want to be in charge. We confess that we're ashamed of our sin. And so we thank you for the second Adam in the second garden. Thank you that he stands in our place. Thank you that he was obedient and faithful. Thank you that he even though he could have used his power for his own good, he uses it for people like us. Thank you that he willingly laid down his life for people like us. And Lord, we pray this week and for this series that we might have more of a grasp of what it means to trust the Lord Jesus. We might have more of a grasp of the power of the cross, that we might know what it means to be in Christ and so to live for him.
Fill us afresh with your spirit, we pray. Might we put to death the deeds of darkness. And might we live for you. Help us to deal with our sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.